Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And as we turn there, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are pre-K through third grade, they can meet in the back. Well, we are continuing a sermon series that we're calling the Summer of Hope. Throughout this summer, we're going through some of the most hopeful passages in all of Scripture, uh, words that encourage us to look beyond our present circumstances and some of the discouraging things that we face, which are very real and very challenging, and that we might see Christ and the hope that we have even now through Him. This morning we're going to talk about hope for reconciliation, hope for unity and peace. We look this morning at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is God's word. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the gospel of our salvation. We ask that you would speak, for we, your servants, listen. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On June 12, 1987, when I was just 10 years old, President Ronald Reagan stood in front of the Brandenburg Gate in what was then known as West Berlin, and delivered one of the most powerful speeches that I've ever heard. Speaking under the shadow of the Iron Curtain, he said, General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, 
if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It was a right thing to say because there was something ugly about that wall. There was something sinful about that wall. It was wrong. The communists had built a dividing wall of hostility, a wall that had separated families, a wall that had separate, separated cities, a wall that had separated nations, a wall that had cut the continent of Europe in half. In 1914, 47 years after the so- before the Soviets built the Berlin Wall, Robert Frost wrote this, Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. And yet, as sinful people, we build walls. We erect what the Bible calls dividing walls of hostility. We divide ourselves along racial lines. We build glass ceilings that exclude women from boardrooms and executive suites. We live in gated communities, communities that separate the rich from the poor, the educated from the uneducated. And when I say we, I mean me. Even among the Christian community, we look down on other people who don't share our exact Christian convictions. We come to people and we say, are you a Christian? And when they say yes, rather than celebrating with them, we say, what kind of Christian are you? Are you a non-denominational Christian? Are you a Presbyterian Christian or a Methodist Christian? Are you an independent, fundamentalist, pre-tribulation, King James-only Christian? Now, in some ways, it feels like a modern phenomenon, but sadly, people have been building dividing walls of hostility as long as there have been people. That's where we find ourselves in the book of Ephesians. In the Apostle Paul's world, the world of the first century, there was no greater wall of hostility than the wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. It was a cultural wall, it was a racial wall, and it was a religious wall. All three. The hostility between Jews and Gentiles was so palpable in the first century that there was a literal dividing wall that separated the temple from the Jews and the Gentiles, with warnings written in Latin and in Greek forbidding all Gentiles from coming into the inner courts of the temple under penalty of death. Do you know where the Apostle Paul was when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians? He was under house arrest in Rome, and he had been arrested because he had been falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the courts of the Lord, where only Jews were permitted to enter. Just the accusation of that was enough to cause a riot in the city of Jerusalem. Now, the great irony of all this is that before Paul became a Christian, he was a wall builder himself. 
He was someone who idolized his Jewish identity to such an extent that he demonized people who were not Jewish at all. He spent years of his life going from town to town, arresting Christians. He helped murder Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. He was there when that happened. And yet that same Apostle Paul writes this, that the gospel tears down the dividing walls of hostility. What happened? What happened to Paul the wall builder? What changed? It's worthy to ask because sometimes it seems like building walls is simply part of human nature. Will we always be building dividing walls of hostility? Will there always be racism? Will there always be sexism? Will there always be elitism? Will we always have class warfare? Is there hope? Paul's answer is, is just as revolutionary today as it was in the first century. The gospel tears down walls. The gospel brings people together. Jesus reconciles us to God, and he reconciles us to one another. If we want unity, if we want reconciliation, if we want peace, if we want shalom then Jesus and the gospel is our only hope. The church is the canvas upon which God is painting a new mosaic, taking men of different races and genders and cultures and classes and nationalities and making us together citizens of God's kingdom. A family, living stones in a new temple. That's where we're headed. Unity, joy, peace, reconciliation, unconditional love. The question is, how do we get there? If you're taking notes this morning, here's our outline. First, we're going to talk about who we were. Second, we're going to talk about what Jesus did. And then third, we're going to talk about who we are. We were outsiders. We are insiders. What happened? What changed? How do we become bridge builders? How do we tear down the dividing walls of hostility that separate us? The answer is Jesus. He's our only hope. Because of Jesus, the world can change. Because of Jesus, we can change. How does it happen? Let's take a closer look. We begin with who we were. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, what does that mean? Strangers and aliens are outsiders. They don't speak the language. They don't know the customs. Because they're not citizens, they don't have some of the same rights and privileges as natural-born citizens have. Often, strangers and aliens lack a sense of of permanence. There's always a sense in which home is someplace else. You'll often hear people who are strangers and aliens and expatriates talk about the old country. That's home. Now, if you've never been a stranger or an alien in a foreign culture, you 
you know how strange that feels to be that person. It can be an overwhelming experience. In July, a group of us are going to Ugandan. Very excited about that. But I've never been to Africa. I've never been to Uganda. Thankfully, many people speak English there, but the primary language there is Lugandan. Ask me how many words I know how to say in Lugandan. Just one. Lugandan. That is literally the only word that I know how to say, and yet I will be preaching and teaching uh, to people whose primary language is Lugandan. Pray for me. We'll be trying to conform to new customs and cultures. I'm told that the pastors there wear suits. (laughs) The women wear long flowing dresses, so some of our ladies will have to buy or bring long flowing dresses Uh, we don't know about the food there i guess we know a little bit about it but do we really know what if we offend our hosts what if we say or do something wrong what if when i'm preaching on sunday i drop just the most amazing top gun maverick illustration and uh they look at me like i have two heads i've no they have no idea what i'm talking about in our own country tight-knit ethnic communities like like Chinatown or or Little Italy often develop because strangers and aliens and exiles often experience a sense of loneliness and isolation, a sense of loneliness that they, and isolation that they don't experience when they're with people who are native-born, who share that same cultural connection that they have. That's what Paul's talking about in the first two verses of our passage, in verses 11 and 12. Now, the Ephesians weren't literally foreigners. They, were lit- they weren't literally strangers and exiles. They were born in Ephesus. Ephesus was their home, earthly speaking, humanly speaking. But spiritually, they were foreigners. Spiritually, they were strangers and exiles. They lived their lives east of Eden, without hope and without God in the world. They lived with a a God-shaped hole in their hearts, a hole that only a living relationship with the God who made us in his image can fill. Now, we often experience the same thing. Ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, all of us have been spiritually homeless. All of us are spiritually exiles with a deep longing to return to the home of our Heavenly Father, to the place where we belong. One of my favorite songwriters, John Foreman, has a lyric in one of his songs that says this, we were created for a place that we've never known. He's expressing what the great church father Augustine was expressing when he said that thou hast made us for thyself, Lord God. And our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Do you hear what they're saying? Do you see what the apostle Paul 
is trying to show us. Now, on one level, this world is our home. Pensacola is our home. The United States is our home. We are citizens of the United States. We have the rights and privileges of citizens. We know the customs. We know the culture. But on another level, on a deeper level, on a more profound level, this world is not our home. Our hearts were made to rest in God. And until we get back to where God is, we all experience what the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre called anguish and forlornness and despair. We have an entire entertainment industry that tries to distract us from those feelings. But make no mistake, they are very real. And they will never fully go away until we find our rest in Him. So what's the answer? Well, in Psalm 90, Moses, a man who spent half of his life as a stranger in Egypt, and the other half of his life as an exile in the wilderness, a man who never set foot in the promised land, wrote this, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. The Bible tells us that we have a forever home, and that forever home is not merely with God. That home is in God. To borrow Paul's language from the book of Ephesians, our heavenly home, the place where we find rest as exiles and strangers, is in Christ. Because of Jesus, because of the grace of God, for everyone who believes, we can say there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, But Christ is all and in all. Who were you? You were strangers and aliens. You were exiles. You were isolated and alone. You were, verse 12, separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do to give us hope? What did Jesus do to give us a forever home? That's our second big idea. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Apostle Paul is telling us that Jesus tore down the dividing walls of hostility. The question is, how did he do it? Well, there are many people who would say that he set an example for us to follow by loving people the way that Jesus loved people, by living the way that Jesus lived. We can tear down all these dividing walls that separate different races and ethnicities and and men and women and rich and poor because Jesus showed us how to live. Now, that's certainly true. Just look at how Jesus treated people. In John chapter 4, Jesus had a long conversation with a Samaritan woman by the well. And in that one short conversation, 
he tore down at least four dividing walls of hostility. Jesus tore down a a gender wall. She was a woman. He was a man. In the first century, it was unheard of for a man to approach a woman and engage her in a conversation. That just didn't happen. Jesus didn't care. He tore down that wall. Jesus tore down a racial wall. She was a Samaritan. He was a Jew. They had ethnic and racial tensions going back for hundreds and hundreds of years. When the Samaritan saw Jesus, she said, How is is it that you, a Jew, can talk to me, a Samaritan? Jesus dismissed her question as if it were completely irrelevant Because it is. Jesus tore down a religious wall. Jesus and the Samaritan woman had different religions. Now, they had some similarities, but again, they were very, very different. In the story, she questions Jesus about some of their religious differences. Did Jesus look down on her? Did Jesus dismiss her? Did Jesus say, I want nothing to do with you? No, not at all. He engaged. Jesus tore down a social wall. In the story, the woman at the well was a woman of questionable moral character. Why do you think she was gathering water all by herself in the middle of the day? In the ancient world, it was almost as hot as it is here. And so women would go early in the morning when it was still a little bit cool outside. They would go in groups so they could have fellowship with one another. They could do their work together. They would gather the water. This woman is at the well alone. And she's there in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day, because no one would go with her. No one would go with her because she was notorious for her promiscuity. Jesus confronts her and says, bring me your husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, you're right about that. You've had quite a few husbands, and the guy that you're with right now is not your husband. Did Jesus pull back? Did Jesus say, well, I can't talk to a person like this. I'm a rabbi. I'm a pastor. No, he engaged. He spoke with her. But here's the thing. As brilliant and glorious as Jesus' example is, if Jesus is only an example for us, then that's not helpful at all. Because he sets the bar so high that none of us could ever attain his level of reconciliation. We just can't. We do look down our noses at other people. We do question people who don't think and believe exactly the way that we think and believe. We judge people. We prejudge people, which is where the word prejudice comes from. We make all kinds of assumptions, some toxic and some rather benign, about what a person thinks or believes based on the color of their skin, based on their level of education, based on what kind of car they drive or what sort of house they live in. We need Jesus to tear down that wall. Walls of prejudice, walls of hatred, walls of ignorance, walls of fear the dividing wall that separates us from other people, the dividing wall that exists within our hearts. 
We don't need instructions about how to do it ourselves. We are too broken. We need Jesus to tear down that wall. How did he do it? Well, according to verse 13, he shed his blood. In Paul's writings, that's shorthand for the cross. Jesus died on the cross for us. And through his blood, we have been reconciled to God. Through his blood, we have been reconciled to one another. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you hear it? Do you hear what Paul is saying? Our sins separated us from God, but on the cross, Jesus took our sins away. Now, the one thing that separates us from God, from God is gone forever. And we have peace and unity with God through Jesus. The ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, the feasts and the festivals and the rules and the regulation, all those things that separated uh, Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world have been fulfilled by Christ. And therefore, we have been reconciled with one another. Because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, Christians are part of what Clement of Alexander has called the third race. We're a new people, a people without walls, because Jesus tore them down. That leads us to our third point, who we are now. We're reconciled. We're a new race. We're a new humanity. We are in Christ. We are the church. Now, Paul uses three illustrations to illustrate this point, and you, it's worth noting that each illustration ratchets up the intensity on this, describing our relationship between God and his people. First, he says that we have become citizens of God's kingdom. Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, that's a, a pretty dramatic thing to say, especially in the context of the first century where Roman citizenship was your most valued possession. If you had it, you had certain rights and privilege, privileges within the empire that others did not have. But now Paul is saying the moment that you become a Christian, you have a new citizenship. Your primary identity is not as a citizen of Rome. Your primary identity is not a citizen of the United States of America. Your primary citizenship is not in Italy or Cuba or Honduras or South Korea or China or Russia. You are not primarily Southern anymore. You're not primarily a white person. You are not primarily a black person. 
your first and primary identity, those, though all of those differences exist and, and are beautiful and should be celebrated, your primary identity is in Christ. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. That comes first. Now next, Paul, ratcheting up the intensity, says that we have been part of we have become part of God's family. According to verse 19, we are members of the household of God. When you become a Christian, your king, the king of the universe, becomes your father. And Christians, the members of the church, become your family. They become your fathers and your mothers and your brothers and your sisters. Now, that is especially cool for me because on an earthly level, I don't have any brothers. I always wanted a brother. But now, because of Jesus, I have millions and millions of brothers. On earth, I have one sister. In God's kingdom, I have millions and millions of sisters. On earth, I have one set of parents, a mom and a dad, and a second set by marriage. In the kingdom of God, I have millions and millions of fathers and mothers. Some of my brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers are dark-skinned Africans and African-Americans. Some of my brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers grew up in Israel and others in Turkey and Palestine. Some of my Christian brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers are Asian, and some are Native American. In Christ, we are a family, one family, the family of God. In Matthew 12, Jesus was teaching some of his disciples, and someone came to him and said, Hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. They want to speak to you. What did Jesus say? He said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples. Stretching out his hands toward us. He said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Maybe you're an only child. Maybe you're a widow or a widower. Maybe you're single, maybe you don't have kids. Here's what you do have. You do have a family. You do have a family in the kingdom of God. Millions of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and grandmas and grandpas because of Jesus. Third thing, Paul says that we have become part of God's temple Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Jesus is the temple of the living God. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth come together. Because of our union with Jesus, we are living stones in a new temple with Christ himself being the cornerstone. Just for a way of illustration, I want you to look at the wall behind me. You see it? It's one wall, many different stones. 
Some are larger and some are smaller. Some are brightly colored and some are a little less brightly colored. Different sizes, different shapes. One wall, one people. That's an illustration of what Jesus has done for us, making us living stones in a new temple. The great irony of all of this is that when we build walls, we build them to separate ourselves from other people. When Jesus builds the wall, he connects us with other people. We are so closely connected that we become living stones with Jesus, members of the household of God. We are no longer strangers and aliens. We are no longer exiles. We are no longer outsiders. Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility by being torn down on the cross. And because he did, we get to live in a world without walls. When Jesus comes in, the walls come down. There's hope for reconciliation. There's hope for unity. There's hope for sacrificial, unconditional love through Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for the gospel of our salvation. We thank you that through the gospel, through your grace, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but that we have become the people of God. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, which you have lavished upon us through your Son, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.